All right, wicked cool. Now, something different, yet the same. It's always the same. They all say the same stuff. Paul Virilio. So Virilio, for those that don't know, uh, was a French thinker, I guess. His name's Italian, though. I think his pops was Italian. I guess that's where he would have gotten his name from. But he uh, had a background in architecture and stumbled into the kind of French theoretical domain kind of theory-dominated area uh, in the late 70s with his uh, pretty important text, Speed and Politics. So that's one of the things that he's most famous for is his idea of speed and what it means uh, for him, or well, what it means for him in the, in the world, I should say. So there are a number of things that uh, he established in that text that we're, I'm not going over here because uh, I have to reread that one before I feel comfortable uh, doing it, but the one of the key concepts is is speed, of course, which we'll unpack a little bit here. But to give a little bit more context about that book, he it's it's a hard book to read. Uh, so this is kind of a warning to anyone wanting to dip their toes in the Virilio camp. Speed in politics, his most famous text that I've been alluding to, is not a very pleasurable read. He spends a good deal of time talking about French military strategy and and. Uh, the way that various barracks were set up, but it's not that exciting. <laughs> if that's what you read these things for, then, you know, you won't get it there. But all that's not that important, because we're even looking at Open Sky. So Open Sky is an interesting text, because it's very approachable. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that it's easy to understand, but there are, and I don't know if this is in every edition, I have the Verso edition, uh, the Radical Thinkers thing, ironic because verso is just a corporate thing but anyways where they uh bold various key terms that come throughout where he provides definitions for these things and i don't know i should have done my research to find out if that was him or if that was the publisher i would assume it was him that did that uh but anyways i'll just jump right into it enough of my rambling so one of the first ideas we are presented with relates pretty pretty smoothly with his idea of speed or with his theories around speed Reese says on my page two, preoccupied as we are at the end of the millennium with developing the absolute speed of our modern real-time transmission tools, we too often forget the comparable historic importance of this other limit speed, the one which has enabled us to escape the real space of our planet and so to fall upwards. So here he's contrasting what he calls absolute speed with the speed that would put us into escape velocity. Right, So this is the image of falling upwards that he gives us. So this whole thing around speed, or what he's interested in, has to really do with his concern for humanity and what our focus on speed as you know, a general uh, propensity that we have for things going fast or, or how we enjoy these things is poses a problem for humanity for Virilio. Now, as I go through this, it's not necessary that you know or have a strong grounding in Baudrillard's work, but there are quite a few affinities between Baudrillard and Virilio. In fact, they were friends. Uh, they knew each other quite well. Uh, but there is a very important distinction to be drawn, whereas for Baudrillard, he doesn't really see the possibility of getting out of this system. In, in many ways, and you know, anyone who's really versed in that stuff would you would probably take me to task on this, rightfully, but, you know, in a kind of broad, broad way, Baudrillard isn't really interested in how to get out of the system, but in many ways kind of looking for the ways in which the system retains, if it does at all, some of the old relics of the, old relics, some of the relics of the past pertaining to ideas that he puts forth, like symbolic exchange or seduction or reversibility or anything like that. Whereas for Virilio, he says... If we don't slow this shit down, we're screwed. Like, we're, that's going to be the end of us, quite quite simply. Like, he starts out this book with a little epigraph, I think that's the word, uh, where he writes, One day, the day will come when the day will not come. It's kind of apocalyptic vision coming out with that passage. 
So with this growing speed, or with this acceleration, he says that soon we will have to learn to fly, to swim in the ether. The ether being that kind of imaginary, I don't know if it's been proven true, I don't, I don't keep up with that stuff, but um, the kind of imaginary uh, medium that the kind of unseen highway for light to traverse through, just as sound needs air, it's assumed that light needs some kind of medium on which to, to, to fly. So this falling upwards act, this kind of arrival at a kind of speed that pushes us outside of the boundaries of the terrestrial plane, that puts us away by extension from ourselves, uh, would require us to, you know, develop this ability to swim in the ether. But of course, he's very skeptical of, you know, he doesn't look on this with exalted eyes, let's say. So arriving at this space, that is the extraterrestrial moment of, swaying through the ether would demand that we have some kind of understand or we would acclimate ourselves to you know things like light speed all the all this type of thing uh, type of thing all all of these types of movements or these these ways to move in order to you know not perish because you know humans have to adapt uh but that's not it's not so simple as that is it's as deposit that it's simply a like a just relative to us, we can adapt to this and everything will be fine. That is because the ether of time light is in no way analogous to our usual calculation of dur duration and geophysical span that are bound by our spatiotemporal understanding of the, of the world. So, in this space we become weightless. We kind of strip away the hindrances of our bodies to become angelic to some extent. So as he says, without a distant horizon, there is no longer any possibility of glimpsing reality. We drop into the time of a fall akin to that of the fallen angels, and the Earth's horizon then becomes just another Bé des Anges. Philosophical letdown in which the idea of nature of the age of enlightenment is eradicated, along with the idea of the real in the age of the speed of light. So he's certainly looking upon this with, you know, not very, hopefully, uh, but this also points to another thing. Verlio was a was a churchgoer. He was a very, uh, I I believe he was practicing Catholic throughout all of his life. So there are metaphors or allusions to biblical ideas in here uh, that you know take it or leave it, I guess. But whatever. That this puts us now into I guess the beginning of the book here. That was just the introduction. So part one. All right. So. He begins this, uh, and th this is kind of aphoristic. So what I mean by that is that it's comprised of a lot of kind of short little essays uh, that don't necessarily form a cohesive thread, but I'm going to try and, you know, give us something, a narrative to cling on to here. So he starts out with this chapter. Again, we're writing the first part, titled The Third Interval. So he says right off the bat, critical mass, critical moment, critical temperature. But you don't hear much about critical space. Well, what is that? What is critical space? He tells us that critical space uh, and critical expanse are now everywhere due to the acceleration of communications tools that obliterate the Atlantic, that reduce France to a square one and a half hours across, or gain time over time with the TGV, the various advertising slogans signaling perfectly the shrinking of geophysical space of which we are the beneficiaries, but also sometimes the unwitting victims. So, w with our developed uh, means of communication and of travel, our relationship to space has altered. So he is working in a kind of phenomenological way, and what I mean by that phenomenolo phenomenological, uh, for those that you know might have a different understanding of it, so we can kind of ground ourselves. He's not describing something happening to the world as a thing in itself. Like, uh, for you know, thinking about Kant, nominally, the idea of a thing, thing in itself, uh, it, this, the world isn't literally shrinking, if we can ever posit there being a thing in itself. Uh, the world isn't literally shrinking. Our perception, our relation to it, makes it so it's shrinking. So it's a, it's a, it appears as though it's shrinking, but in fact, it stays the same. So it's phenomenological in that there's a relationship between the appearance of a thing that affects us, which we in turn 
effect on it. So there's kind of like a dynamic interplay between the appearance, that is the appearance of the world is shrinking, or of, you know, this critical space, you know, approaching on the horizon, uh, and our perceiving it. So it's in that way that it's not literally happening, but through this kind of interplay between observer and observed, which I think is an important, uh, whatever. So with this shrinking of space, we undergo a radical overhaul of not only our connection to the world, but our connection to our own bodies, because we don't have a so-called natural connection to uh, our bodies in the way that perhaps we once did. So, and it's very, there's a lot of Marshall McLuhan here too. So for those that aren't familiar, he talks a lot about the, um, you know, the, the tire being an extension of the, the, the leg or the, um, the pencil being an extension of the hand or, or stuff like that, where we surround ourselves with prostheses, essentially, that ostensibly ameliorate, you know, problem. They make our lives easier. But what, at what cost, Virilio is asking us. So he's saying that this whole process ends, on page 11, in the body terminal of man, of that interactive being who is both transmitter and receiver. To which, you know, I would say, if I was dialoguing with Virilio, I'd shrug my shoulders and say, so what? Tell me why that that is bad. Uh, which he's not always so clear about because these arguments are often hard to conduct because they need a steady point of reference from which they can be related to, which he's kind of doing. So he's saying that we are not as we once were, therefore we are better. Or sorry, we are worse, sorry. We are not as we once were, therefore we are worse because we have this transcendent kind of idea of historical human, right? This kind of and the humanism running through this text is obviously there, uh, which is, we take it to task for that. But I think it's an important criticism, especially with these, these kinds of texts, in that they kind of um, romanticize a time long gone. That I would ask, was it so great? Was this supposed natural time that we had a really great time in and of itself? To, to which I don't know, obviously. I don't I don't know any, any, if anyone has the answer to that. But And here is just another kind of um, his evidence of that, where he says that in the technological evolution, in the development of public and private space, since the more the city expands and spreads its tentacles, the more the family unit dwindles and becomes a minority. So it's like, whoa, 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 back up here, Virilio. Why, why are we, you know, exalting the family unit? But Maybe I'm being too hard. I don't know. That's what we had. That's what he's giving us here. But yeah, to bring us back here into Virilio's territory and to not be so mean, because I do, I, I, I like Virilio. Uh, he's, he tells us this. According to Epicurus, time is the accident to end all accidents. If this is so, then with the tel- teletechnologies of general interactivity, we are entering the age of the accident of the present. This overhyped remote telepresence being only ever the sudden catastrophe of the reality of the present moment, that is our sole entry into duration. But also, as everyone knows since Einstein, our entry into the expanse of the real world. So I think what he's giving us here is a good way to engage with his work without simply regressing to a kind of conservative, uh, my old, my my day uh, type thing. So when he's framing the problem of reality, it's having almost a breaking point. That is uh, reality, which we're kind of assuming is just a good thing, right? So a kind of natural space that we're assuming is a good thing has a breaking point. And that breaking point comes about through speed. And this speed doesn't necessarily uh, disturb our relationship to space, right? So all of the metaphors around travel or anything like that, Uh, you know, give us this sense that he's talking about space, but in many ways it has to do with our conception of time. So there, okay, and I was, you know, battling with myself as to whether or not to bring this up, but there is a media theorist or kind of the figurehead of media studies for some people, a Canadian guy named Harold Innes, who talks about this in in other words, where he says that there is uh, 
different biases or every civilization embodies within them various biases that guide that structure. He divides them in, into two, essentially. He says that there are biases for speed, or sorry, biases for space and biases for time, where they each represent a different way for that civilization to, to act, where biases for time make it so that a civilization will endure through a time, or bias for space being civilizations that expand through space. So I think that when we're what, what Virilio is getting at here is almost like a movement beyond that where we just don't have a connection to either space nor time in a way that it can be grasped. And that is the problem for him because it can't be accounted for simply because we're moving too fast. We're kind of left in a state of suspension. And without that ability to ground ourselves, then I think that, you know, this is when we risk ushering in various, you know, bad things risk ushering in because we don't have a steady ground on which to you know hold hold ourselves and say no and it's very i think similar to simon vai for anyone familiar with her work so we are for him on a on a trajectory kind of like a collision course with the unknown a collision course that is fundamentally for him uncontrollable and that i think this is the strongest kind of criticism he has or theories putting forth where it does it's not you know the like oh it was once better so therefore uh he's giving us a you know steady image of why this is a bad thing or why we should be a little bit wary about what it might lead us to so in this process so if we lead if we are propelled to the unknown to this kind of space where we're swimming in the ether kind of suspended then we lose our ability to communicate because it becomes, you know, a communication mediated through some kind of technology or whatever. Uh, we lose our ability to um, to love, to uh, dialogue, to all these types of things in favor of our being totally detached from one another, where our relationships with people are, you know, perhaps I will say in air quotes, superficial. Where for him, getting closer to the distant takes you away from proportionally from the near and dear, the friend, the relative, the neighbor, thus making strangers, if not actual enemies, of all who are close at hand, whether they be family, workmates, or neighborhood acquaintances. This inversion of social practices already evident in the development of communication equipments is further reinforced, radicalized by the new telecommunications equipment, that is teleports. So that, you know, that's kind of what, what he's getting at here. And the sense of community, I think, is important, where you know, community, or at least having an affinity with people in your geographic surroundings. And many, many people take this up now as like a tactic for survival, especially marginalized communities. Uh, and this isn't uh, restricted to cities, of course, because many rural communities, there, there are many examples of this too. But people really try to almost emulate their geographical setting, or from which they, they hail in other spaces, you know, to kind of give them that grounding, in a sense, which I think is attests to, you know, Virilio's vision here. All right, so now we'll put ourselves in chapter two here, the perspective of real time. So here uh, he develops this idea of dromology. So from his first book, Speed and Politics, I think it was his first book, but his first book that people in this kind of field read, I think, um, Speed and Politics, uh, he develops this idea of dromology. So dromology, ology, broken into two words, you know, the ology, but then the root being dromos from the Greek, I would assume, which means to erase or to run or move. So this idea, he takes it up because it automatically implies a kind of uh, speed because things are always moving. So to study dromology is to study speed for him. So speed is important because he not only wants to see things in the world happening in, in terms of speed, so movement, uh, and not only reducing it to today with our new technologies, but as a condition always, uh, but trying to develop a frame to understand that phenomenon as well. 
So one way that we can engage in this system is by looking at film, or that is the the real time present in our relationship to film media or cinema. So the film strip, the film reel, and later the real time video cassette of nonstop telesurveillance will all illustrate the incredible innovation of a continuous time light. In other words, the greatest scientific invention since fire, the invention of an indirect light that takes over from the direct light of the sun or of electricity, just as electricity once took over from daylight. I'll continue here. These days, the screen of real-time televised broadcast is no longer a monochromatic filter like the one of f- familiar to photographers, which lets through a single color only of the spectrum, but a monochromatic Jesus filter which allows a glimpse only of the present, an intensive presence spawned by the limit speed of electromagnetic waves and no longer registered in chronological time, past, present, future, but in chronoscopic time, underexposed, exposed, overexposed. So if this sounds really confusing, it's because it is. So I think, I think he's trying to get, trying to reframe what might have been a classic problem of past, present, and future with this idea of the underexposed, exposed, and overexposed, where, you know, things in the past are given very little credit and, you know, we have the carrot on the end of the sick mentality and yada, yada, yada. But he continues here by saying that the real-time perspective of video's transparent horizon only exists through the inertia of the present moment. So it's by almost by going backwards. So by looking at film, or the film reel, the real-time perspective of video's trans, transparent, uh, only through that, we, we can, not only, but through that we can get a glimpse of the situation we find ourselves in. So there's another image that he draws in another text called The Last Vehicle. So in that, he draws the image of someone sitting on a plane. So they're physically, they're moving somewhere. But also, they're watching a film. So let's say they leave New York City, and they're headed to, I don't know, Hong Kong. But on that trip, they're watching a film that takes place in Paris. For Virilio, there's... there's like there's so many movements going on there that he you know he tries to unravel them but he says that there's a you know your physical movement which is already like a non-real movement in that it's happening at such a uh an otherworldly pace that is being on a plane but also the kind of i think he calls it the cinematic or the cinematic but like the uh synthesis of the words kinematic so the idea of movement or kinesis and cinema coming together. So you're moving by looking at the cinema too, or the looking at the screen, because you are transported to that place. So there is a dual movement. And because the screen, whereas at one time, if you were you're reading a book on a plane, you aren't uh, delivered there in the same way because you aren't given a kind of full sensory experience, or well, at least now your eyes are in tune to it, where you see the spaces as well as hear them. Uh, then you are given like a new way to transport yourself there. Perhaps the next step will be that we'll be actually be able to emulate the feelings and the smells of various places and then make that part of the media consumption experience. And I think that'd be that, you know, the next step. So I think that gives us an idea of how he's trying to frame the instantaneity of, you know, televisions or of film or anything like that to operate to uh, work alongside this kind of dromological that is movement logic or the study of movement so I'm trying here not to be too repetitive because uh, it's, it's kind of repetitive um, this book is both really repetitive and not repetitive because he introduces so many terms but they all fit within this broader argument so you know I couldn't possibly present them all it's useless it's uh, to do that, then it would just be a list. Uh, but yeah, so I'm trying to, you know, really sift through what's important here, or well, in my notes, at least. So now, moving from this chapter on real time, we go get into the next one, optics on a grand scale. So he begins this by saying, what can we say about the splitting of sight, the emergence of a second optics, optics the optics that now makes teleconferencing between Tokyo and Paris possible? So these optics allow us to transport not only images, but in many ways ourselves, where we, 
you know, being filmed can be instantly transmitted somewhere else, a kind of teleportation imagined only in sci-fi or like these hologram things that in like Star Wars or something like that. So this, uh, for him, disregards the traditional notion of a horizon in that it gets rid of, you know, um, a kind of limit point where the horizon being a kind of end, end point for us uh, can be now circumvented. It can be transcended. So in the wake of this, he asks, how can we survive the instantaneous telescoping of a reality that has become ubiquitous, that is, all present, or everywhere? Breaking up into two orders of time, each as real as the other, that of presence here and now, and that of a telepresence at a distance, beyond the horizon of tangible appearances. So, you know, I'm trying to imagine this without, you know, again, just simply regressing into a it's just different than it used to be, therefore it's bad. So I'm trying to imagine to give another image for this of someone being split, right? And we think of Harry Potter here, where the Horcruxes are ultimately splitting uh, Voldemort, where with each one that he creates, he's becoming less of a, you know, of him himself. So I think that we can kind of imagine this in a similar way. Sorry for the, you know, super pop culture reference, but... Um, think of this in a similar way, whereby being refracted, right, just as light was once refracted, well, it still is, obviously, but by us being refracted and then disseminated, distributed into so many different, you know, possible communication avenues, which at the time he was writing this, you know, wasn't, had nothing to do or couldn't hold up a candle to what was going on today. And speaking of, Virilio was alive until just September, this past September or October or something, he just died. Uh, so he saw all this. I would have would have been interested to see which is if he wrote at all later on. But anyways, uh, so we are being split essentially through all of these different ways to communicate ourselves, and in effect, we lose connection to ourselves as ourselves. So we become, you know, an appearance for others to consume, which would be a kind of still a you know, conservative outlook on, and I don't necessarily mean conservative in like the political stream, just as a more of a uh, general idea, a conservative kind of criticism of things like Instagram or Facebook or, or Twitter or other social media that, you know, look down on people for using, like, oh, you, it's not you really on there, it's your ideal self. And, uh, yeah. and for me, you know, I'm plagued by Derrida's thinking, uh, but, you know, there is in a lot of this uh, what a commitment to what Derrida calls, you know, the metaphysics of presence, where he says that there is a heavy emphasis on the history of philosophy to place emphasis, so there is a, whatever, an emphasis to place emphasis on presence as being uh, transcendent, kind of, kind of uh, transcendence through imminence of being that you know can't be matched you can't match it by writing stuff down you can't match it by representing yourself in other forms than your immediate being somewhere uh so instead which is so, yeah whatever we'll keep going so one of the other kind of criticisms that virilio is leveling is against the way that for these kinds of technologies surely indicative of the movements of late capitalism, uh, pose certain risks to our environment. So when he's talking about this shrinking of space, right, and the way I was framing it, like as being uh, occurring only by, you know, through human perception, there are still things, you know, occurring at the level of space that are, should be a concern to us. It's not its literal shrinking, it's its destruction. So as he says, uh, we're... Uh, Viral contamination offers an initial response to the question of the downside of electronic circuits. But another area of research beckons, the area of ecological pollution. So the pollution not only of air, water, and other substances, but also the unperceived pollution of distances. This dromospheric contamination of time distances that reduces to nothing, or next to nothing, the expanse of a constricted planet, hanging in the vacuum of space. So we see both occurring here. 
So it's, you know, I think it's important not to just consider this as being some kind of purely metaphysical problem or something that is occurring uh, only on a theoretical level that doesn't have any tangible effects. I think it's important to maintain that both are occurring, where there are these material developments on the planet that affect us in what how he's describing it in a kind of theoretical, metaphysical way. Uh, but also we see with the material developments, we see the material consequences. Or he gives us a, a nice other little anecdote where he talks about a, um, a probe sent out into space where this probe is moving away from Earth at 46,000 kilometers an hour. And he asks, well, what the hell's a kilometer out there and what is an hour? Because it's moving further and further away from the the space that, you know, christened these ideas, that is, um, hours and, and kilometers. So what happens to that thing at that speed? Does it cease becoming what it is? Does it retain its being, as, as you know, an earthly being, but is alien to that earth from which it derives? Who knows? So I think that'll push us here into part two. So the first chapter in this part being the Law of Proximity, or titled The Law of Proximity. So he begins this chapter with a, a testimony from the vice president of Toyota Motor Corp's research laboratory, where he's talking, he, it's a he apparently, I have no idea, but I just said it was a he, Jesus. They uh, are talking about a little electronic um, device that can go into your uh Go, go into your body, essentially, and look for viruses or stuff like that, or uh, be able to um, explore the human body, in just simply. So Virilio says that this presents the moment that, you know, we have essentially uh, colonized the world, so now the next step is for us to colonize our bodies with these technological developments, these technological prostheses, he says. And what this would result in is a kind of homogenization of bodies in a way that reduces them to the kind of technological uh, ro robotic things, right? So they lose their humanity in this process. And as these technologies would come to invade our bodies, uh, and we need not think about this simply in terms of, you know, little bug-like organisms or, or robots coming into our body but we can think about it, about it in terms of just surrounding ourselves with various technologies in order to make our lives easier. So for Virilio, this speaks to the general logic of less being more. So our proclivity for lessening the burden of life, uh, because that life sucks, <laughs> you know, in favor of making our lives easier. What does that culminate into? What will that ultimately result in? For him, if less is more, to what extent? Or he asks this question, to which he says, to the point where it reaches the virtual, where it becomes this image, this virtual reality that is ultimately more decisive than the thing, which is merely the image of. So the human would then become more of their image than, you know, what they are themselves. So this distinction between the two, right? Okay, so I think that captures the gist of that chapter was about moving us now into gray ecology i'm going quick because i want to get through this one in this one go through because i think i can but anyways so this is where he expands on the idea of a pollution of distance where he starts out by saying of course you know there's the pollution of the earth and as we understand it normally but what does it mean for there to be a pollution of di distance so this is the pollution that reduces to nothing Earth scale and size. So this relative shrinking of space poses uh, a response by people. So instead of focusing on space, we then focus on duration. So like the the guy Harold Innes I brought up before, it I, it's either one or the other, really. Either there's a propensity for space or that of time, for time. So here, Virilio tells us that when we lose our sense of space, we then make up for it. We kind of compensate by investing more time. So where the display space is reduced, the pace has to pick up so that what is lacking in extension can be put back into duration. 
The perspective of the real life-size space of a world still full, still whole, is now of necessity, saddled with the relativistic perspective of time, that real time of instantaneity that makes up for the definitive loss of geophysical distance. So real time, then, comes to take the place of real space. So we see uh, an emphasis on getting things to different places faster. So if we are losing our connection to space, let's take advantage of it. Let's hyper, let's put ourselves into hyperspeed here in terms of time in order to kind of compensate for that kind of falling apart of, of our understanding of space or our even knowledge of it being there. So what this has culminated into for Virilio in another biblical way is that this real-time barrier at which, having successfully broken the barriers of sound and heat, humanity finally attains the behavioral inertia that causes, causes us to lose our angelic attributes, that is, angel attributes, to shed our wings in a fall form, a forfeiting of grace into a corpse-like fixedness which is admittedly relative, but final as far as our relationship with the world of physical experience goes. So, ah, it's like, if we use the Bible as a goddamn reference point or religion, then everything's going to look like crap. Nothing is going to be able to live up to that, that image or that, that idea. But anyways, we're trying to be gentle here, but that here, we'll get into this next chapter here, continental drift. So in this process of time taking over space, what we see is the disillusionment of geographical barriers, which for Virilio was a good thing. So you very much tied to one's geography, would people would develop their cultures. So when we see that go away, you know, through a general uh, increase in globalized um, kind of media dissemination, we see these relationships to geography, to land, all this type of stuff go away. What we see is a, the, the ushering in of a kind of homogenization of the planet. So I, I wouldn't say that this really happens quite as neatly as Virilio's kind of caution uh, suggests, but it's a good point nevertheless in that uh, throughout this whole process, we certainly see a dis a destabilization of one's connection to the land in favor of one's connection to a kind of global system, whether it be like a global economic system in the form of capitalism to a kind of world government system, not in a conspiratorial way, but in the kind of, you know, uh, don't fuck with the United States kind of way. <laughs> and here, subscriber numbers drop. Fucking no one. I can, like, it's good that I don't care. So, but this is also seen in not such a malevolent way where we have things like the brain drain or we see things like, uh, you know, various countries being left behind because they don't share the same relationship to these kinds of technologies as the West does. And therefore, because the quote unquote West has power, whatever that is, but let's say they do, whether be in the form of wealth or military might or anything like that, uh, those countries that do not subscribe to that doctrine are therefore going to be left out of the opportunities that that kind of power affords. So it could be said that with this shrinking of space where everything is coming together and kind of continental drift, we see the world becoming the U.S. in a sense, which again is really reductive, like culture still persists and, and all that uh, but still, you know, the risk is there. And with this becoming United States of the world, we see a kind of becoming, you know, cybernetic of the world, a term that, or the idea of the cyber uh, running throughout this book um, of the world, you know, putting people under kind of robotic control, because we must remember that the term robot comes from the Czech for robota, I think, which was slave. So robots are slaves, at least etymologically. Um, so we see in this process not only that, you know, the becoming slave or the homogenization of humans, uh, but we, in this process, 
I think that that might culminate into a creation of a kind of in-group, right? So those people that belong to that framework are, you know, they'll be fine, I think. But then those people that do not subscribe to it, precisely because this in-group can rely on the affirmation afforded them by the jackals of science, the jackals of, you know, U.S. foreign policy, anyone that doesn't subscribe to that is that much more susceptible to, to eradication, you know, whether it be through assimilation, whether it be through, you know, destruction, anything like that. Yeah. And this is just, yeah, you know, that I, I see in Virilio a concern for that. So then he finishes this chapter and this part as well with, with this. So the metaphor of nuclear catastrophe and fallout is no longer a stylistic trope, but in the end an accurate enough image of the damage to human activity caused by the sudden implosion-explosion of computerized interactivity. And that's not to say, you know, that's not even to mention the kinds of harms that are done to various people that don't subscribe to this doctrine, right? Uh, it's kind of like this is what we're going to do to ourselves if we continue on this path. So then we get into the next part in the next chapter titled I Lust. So this I Lust pertaining to the realm of representation through the media, you know, media, I use that term broadly, but like through television, through internet, computers, whatever, where he says that since the optical unwinding of the real now no longer lets up, it is becoming hard, even impossible, to believe in the stability of the real, in our ability to pin down a visible that never stops vanishing, the space of the building suddenly giving way to the instability of a public image that has become omnipresent. So, in, in effect then, are we about to lose our status as eyewitnesses of tangible reality once and for all, you know, in favor of these mediatized, mediatized, mediated, whatever, images of that reality? And he raises a good point because I would like to think that our relationship to media or our relationship to mediated images, the way in which we're doing it today, is really a, a, an intensified form of what we've always had, right? I mean, cave paintings attest to this. But this intensification shouldn't be ignored. Like, is it, as just a thought experiment, it's interesting to think about whether or not there is a point when we have to, you know, dial it back and say, okay, maybe we have to rethink this whole culture around, you know, television and porn and Instagram and all this type of stuff. I'm not saying that just because, you know, I'm not, I don't want to put like a value judgment on it, but it's just an, you know, a thought experiment. Like maybe there is that possibility. And certainly Virilia would think so. Uh, but, you know, just putting it out there. Orwell, in Virilio's words, he asks, should we not insist on an immediate lowering of intensity in the transmission of appearances? So I think one of the questions he's, you know, asking beneath all the rhetoric uh, is um, if we are bombarded with media mediated images through our various technologies, to what extent or is it possible that our brains will then become wired to only ever look for those types of images. And that for him is obviously presents a problem because it's, you know, how are we supposed to foster connections and relationships and and romances and all that type of stuff if we can only look at them through uh, these kind of mediatized, me mediated forms. Like one example would be like Tinder replacing, um, you know, dating. Or I don't know uh, if that happens. But... Uh, as a as a replacement of what was once something reserved for like like these natural sensory moments. Again, I should I feel compelled to say this. I don't buy this totally, uh, but I think that it's a, the image is appropriate. So then we go into the next chapter: sexual perversion, sexual diversion, and here he he affirms the idea or. Um, reiterates that through these processes, we lose touch with tangible reality. So by becoming more invested with mediated images through these technological innovations, we lose our connection to things in the world with tangible reality. 
And I don't think he necessarily means tangible, like things you can touch with your hands, but tangible through all our senses. And one thing this will culminate into for Virlio is a, a phenomenal increase in divorce rates. This is as though that's bad. Oh, God. It's like, Virilio, maybe monogamy is the problem here. No. It's a loss of value. Z. And this really bad stuff, you know, this would... Yeah. Anyways, uh, he talks about the way that sexual harassment complaints, you know, happens in proportion to these increases as though they are a symptom of the of it not a symptom of something like, oh, I don't know, patriarchy, something that has existed for a hell of a lot longer than these types of institutions or these types of technological innovations, but maybe it is only now with these innovations that we can actually hear about these things occurring. But I, I don't even buy that. Everyone knows this was occurring, it's, and it, it's just that we were all hearing it at the same time. It's not that we weren't hearing it, but... When everyone is bringing it up, suddenly us men can't hide anymore. For our, we should just disappear. So sex for him no longer exists. In fact, or instead, it has been replaced by fear. So that is a fear of the other, of the dissimilar. It is won out over our sexual attraction. After the struggle against the gravity of weighty bodies and all the research done on techniques of levitation and weightlessness, there begins a similar war on that universal attraction that enables the species to survive. Genetic engineering, artificial fertilization, and so on are all, on are all permutations of the same assault on the living being. So if we were to extend an olive branch here to Virilio, so that would mean barring off all those people that want to reproduce, they want to have children, but can't do it, because for whatever reason, a need to turn to these quote-unquote artificial ways of doing it. I think that his point is sound, or, you know, I see some benefit to it because it raises some fundamental questions about what it means to be a human. Where let's not say that, you know, our ability to reproduce is then taken over by these technologies, but I think it raises a question of what it might mean if, we are uh, denied the ability to reproduce and that only through these technologies can that occur. Uh, I think that would mark a certain control over the human body, you know, especially in the way that various conversations about reproductive rights are going on today, uh, where take away what uh, people's relationships to their own bodies and command what they can and cannot do with them, I think is an extension of this and whether or not that has a direct connection to these technological innovations is neither here nor there and it's really just my you know the connection i'm drawing here but i'm sure someone will their subscriber list coming down i'm pro-choice sorry y'all but not sorry yeah he ends this chapter by saying unless social disintegration has already entered an irreversible phase with the decline in the nuclear family and the boom in the population unit of the single parent. Fuck those single parents. They are the plight of our culture. <sighs> Alright, let's 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 get this done. Moving into the next chapter here, we have escape velocity. So this is a term. Yeah, anyways, we'll get into it. So he gives us a quote here that goes as follows. The earth teaches us a lot more about ourselves than all the books in the world because it resists us. So here we're getting the sense that the earth plays some kind of an, inter uh, an important role for humanity. So an escape velocity is that moving beyond the earth. So we can already get the idea. Oh, just finish now. I already get the idea what he's going to say about this. So well, in a sense, this, this chapter being, uh, you know, coming right at the end of the book brings us back to the beginning so that question of floating in the or the image of us floating in the ether so us moving beyond uh, our geographical limitations or what we once perceived as limitations because it sucked you know to move from place to place sucked us going into space was the complete circumvention of that struggle in favor of limitless possibility but how that limitlessness in a sense, 
only ever points to our being constrained. That is constrained by the very logic of speed, by the very logic of so-called liberation, the logic of kind of scientific rationality or anything like that, that does more to put us into a, what he calls a one-dimensional duration rather than into like this kind of possibility. So at one time he says, the axis of the world, the world of Mother Earth, this is on the last page, whose autonomy and stability were assured only by its geocentric positions at the heart of a cosmos where vertical and aerial liberation was both technically impossible and barred. If we confine ourselves to the Hebrew register this time to catch a glimpse of the shadow of the Tower of Babel. So that is us, you know, the Tower of Babel, us trying to reach the heavens and then God saying, nope. I'm going to break this apart and you're not going to be able to talk to one another because you're all going to speak different languages. So that's the story for different languages. Um, so I kind of glossed over the last chapter because it's very, uh, it's quote heavy and it's, there is a lot of repetition. So for this book, you know, I normally recommend people read it, which you should read it. And it's short and it's, it's, it's complicated but it's probably worth reading, but with like a pretty critical gaze, you know, I'm very much uh, plagued by Derrida. So uh, this kind of stuff really rubs me the wrong way. And for that matter, Nietzsche too, like these kinds of sentiments, like a kind of um, transcendent Christianity to oppose a scientific rationality I see these two things as them being two sides of the same coin and not giving us any real kind of solutions. At least that's that's me. Uh, but I imagine I'm going to get a lot of hate, a lot of hate, if anyone actually listens to it. Uh, but if anyone does and you got some beef with it, I'd like to hear, you know, your defense of Virilio or where you felt that maybe I was unfair uh, with his text or with anything else I said. Because I'm I always want to learn. So if you got any other opinions lay them on me. But on that note, 